Welcome to episode six of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey and I'm none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf and I'm the associate editor at the magazine and we've got an action-packed podcast with three guests today so we're going to get straight on with it. Ed. Our first guest today on this week's podcast is Phil Edgar-Jones of Sky Arts. Now I met Phil back in the day when I was one of the celebrity contestants of Big Brother and uh, I know from experience that Phil never does anything half-heartedly. He was indeed the progenitor of Big Brother, although, of course, I have never been a celebrity guest on Big Brother, which is something that Phil, I think, feels eternally guilty about. But uh, at the time when he produced Big Brother, he tried to persuade all the art galleries that he was producing performance art. Unfortunately, he was roundly rejected with this thesis, but it was his spirit of perseverance that has finally seen him recognised as a cultural leader and the head honcho of Sky Arts. But the big news, apart from obviously wanting to talk to Phil in general about Sky Arts, which by the way, I'm a massive fan of, is that this month it is becoming free to everyone. It's going to be the only space on terrestrial TV, uh, which is a channel dedicated solely to arts and culture. So fantastic, welcome Phil. Well, it's very, uh, I'm, I'm very, I'm honoured to be here, Ed, and, I, and I, it was a massive oversight not having you on Big Brother. <laughs> You're slightly lost for words with my garbled and bizarre introduction. Which no, I no, 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 I'm just, I'm just imagining you as a Big Brother <clears throat> contestant. I mean, I have to so say, I was, I was <laughs> a... Torture would have inflicted upon you. <laughs> I have to say, I was a massive fan of Big Brother, and I did think it was cultural television. And uh, I sought out Peter Bazalgette to be the chairman of the Arts Council, and I remember at the time some very pompous people saying, how on earth can you have this man who invented Big Brother? Little did they know it was all you, Phil, who invented Big Brother being chairman of the Arts Council. Well, I think it was cutting-edge television. But anyway, we are digressing. Yes, yes. Well, I thought well, you were going to offer me the job of chairman of the Arts Council there. Just yes, accidentally. please, be my guest. <laughs> so, Phil, I can quite see why Ed was so keen to have you on, because you're both so resolutely banging the same drum, i.e. more people need to have access to the arts, and the more the better. Because I know you stated that the arts are not just good for our health and mental well-being, but that they also create a kinder, more empathetic, diverse and thoughtful society. Of course, that's what Ed and I like to believe too. To, and that's why we're here. But I was very interested to hear you say that television can't fix the dire post-COVID situation that culture is in, but it can be part of the story of its recovery. So can you expand on that a bit more for us? Well, I think, I think yeah, we've got, we, 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 no one person or one institution alone can fix the crisis that the arts finds itself in at the moment, but we can all do our little bit to help. So there's a couple of things I think we, we're already, already doing. You know, I think partly going free to air, making our channel more accessible to more people, to engage more people in arts and culture, I think is one good thing. You know, the more we can do that, the better uh, to make people realise it's entertaining, not just uh, something that is kind of highfalutin and not for them. Uh, I think the other thing that we're uh, really sort of working hard on is going directly to artists and arts institutions to commission work. So we're not just necessarily making traditional documentary television that is kind of about something. We're actually engaging with artists to create work that lives beyond television in, in the real world. And I think that's something we can do. We're kind of uniquely placed to do as a TV channel. Uh, we can be an active participant, not just a spectator in the arts, if that makes sense. What, what kind of things? Can you give us some well, examples of that? OK, so we've we directly commissioned Nadia Fall at Stratford East to produce 
a, a play that's gone straight to television and will have a life beyond that as a play as well. It was, it's called No Masks and it's uh, based on testimony from key workers during the coronavirus crisis. Uh, that's one thing that we're doing. We're talking to a couple of big name artists. I can't reveal who they are at the moment about taking over the channel and creating work that goes directly uh, onto television, but that's so it will live beyond in the, in the real world as well. Uh, we're uh, starting production on a project called Landmark, where local communities around the country can engage with local artists to create work that would be sort of live and breathe forever in their local community, commemorating something or somebody that they uh, all, all, all agree should be commemorated. And that's a way of getting people to really engage and participate in, in the art, not just sort of watch it. And we know that by driving participation, you get sort of deeper engagement in the, in the work you're producing. And then the third thing that we're doing actually as well, which I think is very important, is uh, we're really doubling down on finding new voices in the arts and across all the, all the genres in the arts. So one thing we're doing, for example, is creating a bursary scheme where we'll reward uh, five young emerging artists, £30,000 each to live and practice their work uh, for a year. Uh, you know, it takes the pressure off of them to pay the rent. Uh, so that's something that I think that is, is, it's a little thing we can do in a way, but it's, it's, I think one of the dangers at the moment really is that uh, there's a sort of crisis of people potentially in the arts, isn't there? There's so many people leaving art college or drama college uh, who perhaps aren't going to get the opportunities they would have had uh, pre-coronavirus. And, and that's something that we're kind of looking at all the time. And so Freeview reaches 18 million living rooms. And from what I'm hearing, you're positioning Sky Arts as the channel that really wants to connect the public with art once and for all and involve all of us in the recovery of our culture. So talk me through what a typical viewer tuning into Sky Arts, you know, how should one use the channel? Obviously, watching it is a joy because we've got lots of incredible content. And I'm, I don't kid myself that uh, viewers are going to sit there all night and like everything that we have. I think one of the things, particularly around arts and cultural content, is people tend to seek out the content that they're passionate about. You know, your your Johnny Cash fan doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily going to sit through our you know fifteen hours of Wagner's Ring Cycle in, in German from Bayreuth. Uh, likewise, that, that that which we do do. Uh, likewise, that that person won't necessarily be a fan of Portrait Artists of the Year. Uh, so, I mean, there's two things, you know, we're, we're looking at at the moment specifically, if I give you specific examples, we, our, our Portrait Arts of the Year programme is something that we, is a kind of participatory piece. We also have a spin-off of that, which we launched during uh, the, the lockdown, which is called Portrait Arts of the Week. And that was a really, in, that's been a really interesting, sort of, kind of bit of a revelation, actually. We streamed it on Facebook Live. You had a sitter a portrait painter who was one of the alumni from the programme, our judges, Joan Bakewell presenting, and a community of painters have gathered around their laptops, painting along at the same time for four hours of a Sunday morning. Uh, and that was a kind of wonderful thing in a way. Could anyone join in, Phil? Anyone could join in. You could have joined in. You could have joined in. Anyone could have wow. joined in. And then you send your, your, send your paintings in. We're going to reboot this show around the next series of Portrait Arts of the Year. But what I thought was really interesting about it was this uh, community that was created around a passion point for people. And that's where we are kind of interested in exploring further. And that community could talk to us, they could talk to the celebrity sitter, they could talk to the painter, but what was more profound about it, I think, was that they were people were talking to each other. And that community continued after the, we stopped uh, 
creating that, making that show. I think what's so exciting about what you're doing is this idea that you're getting the public somehow to talk to each other through the content you're providing. I mean, I think that's that's almost, I mean, that's really, really exciting because that's got no limits really to how far you could go with that. You could have actors doing masterclasses and all sorts of things, you know, using your platform as a way of, of complete strangers kind of connecting and all through the love of arts. I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, in fact, that we're, you know, you absolutely hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what we want to be doing. In fact, we're talking to uh, a major theatre company about doing something sort of exactly like that, where you can interact with the with the rehearsals as they go through. Oh, uh, There's cool. some really cool stuff. And, and that's what's been really interesting for me, actually. Uh, we've really uh, doubled our efforts, really, to engage directly with artists who don't necessarily... Uh, get how you make TV. I think that's a sort of wonderful thing. We we can make telly. We know how to do that. We know lots of people who can make telly. But if you engage directly with artists, they they're not constrained by the boundaries that we impose upon ourselves as TV practitioners. So we're we're really finding at the moment we're getting some quite crazy, interesting ideas uh, that we've never heard before. And that's where I think we can do something that's really interesting, that's unique to us that nobody else could do. I love it. Oh, Left a bit Benedict. Right a bit Benedict. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> hit your mark, for God's sake, man. <laughs> Can I just uh, finish off by hitting the hot button issue of the day in a slightly irritating and annoying way? Is this a challenge to the BBC? Because lots of the BBC is coming for a lot of criticism, and you're effectively saying we're a commercial channel. We're basically this is a channel the BBC should have, but we're doing it. I guess I get. Well, you know, I get asked this a lot, and I will say, and it's true. I don't think this is a zero sum game. I think it's, you know, the BBC do great work across the arts and I wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of criticise it. I think, you know, because people tend to think the BBC4 is the only arts channel on the BBC and it's not. It does science and history, it does nature, it does uh, all sorts of different things. And BBC arts exists across the entire BBC output from radio to television and they do great work. Uh, and I think the more we succeed in that area the more we help push the bbc on the more the bbc succeed in that area there's a sort of nice healthy competition but um i'd love nothing more and i've said this to many people uh, i'd love nothing more than sort of collaborate on a huge arts project with the bbc in fact i'm meeting john t claypole this evening so we'll, we'll talk about that very thing you heard it here first <laughs> hopefully hopefully it's going to be filmed and the audience can interact with your discussion Yes. <laughs> um, brilliant. Thanks so much, Phil. I'm very, very excited to see Sky Arts on uh, terrestrial television. I'm sure there's going to be loads for us to watch. And I'm really pleased as well that you've come on this podcast so that our millions of listeners, including, <laughs> including the Ben and Old Girls, who were slightly upset, <laughs> um, will know that this is coming their way in a matter of days. It's uh, Thursday the 17th uh, and of September and it's about midday. Uh, the people that have to switch over from uh, onto Freeview have to have a cup of tea first, apparently, before they switch it over. So after they've had their cup of tea around midday on the 17th of September, everyone in the UK can see this. Very exciting. Brilliant. Thank you, Phil. Thank you so much. All the best. Thank you very much. Our next guest is Nile Patel, who's something of a digital warrior. He was the European commercial director of AOL. He launched the digital division of The Economist, and most recently, he was at the BBC, where he drove the growth of the BBC iPlayer and he launched BBC Sounds, the radio, very successful BBC radio app. And now, luckily for them, Digital Theatre has him as their chief executive. Now, 
Digital Theatre is very close to me because I am technically the chairman of the advisory board of Digital Theatre. And I take the view, if you're going to do a podcast about culture, why the hell not promote your friends? But also, I think a lot of people are going to be interested in the work that Digital Theatre is doing in schools, colleges and universities on theatre. So welcome, Neelay. Thank you very much. Lovely to meet you, uh, Charlotte, and uh, lovely to speak to you again there, Ed. Yes, good morning. It's lovely to have you. Charlotte writes the scripts. <laughs> and my next question is a very embarrassing one, considering I'm chairman of the advisory board. Can you start by telling us what digital theatre does? But obviously our listeners would love to hear from the horse's mouth, the chief executive, what does digital theatre do? Sure. Well, there are two aspects of digital theatre. One is digital theatre, direct, our direct-to-consumer offering, which is, uh, I hate to say it, uh, a Netflix for live theater is the best way to the best way to explain it. So um, you come to digital theater for the best of the world's uh, of live theater productions um, for a monthly subscription and uh, 20, you know, access on all your devices and um, uh, to be viewed in the comfort of your own home. And then we have another business, our much bigger business, which is our education business. We refer to it as Digital Theater Plus, and that is an online learning platform where we provide services, an online service, to uh, secondary schools, colleges, universities uh, around the world. Um, we're, into, we're in 94 countries. Uh, we have about 4 million students now around the world have access to our platform, where we help teachers teach theater, drama, uh, English language arts um, around the world. And we help students uh, uh, learn in those respective subjects. Now, that's very interesting, Neil, because I heard somewhere or I read somewhere that when you were a student, you really used to struggle with the arts and Shakespeare and theater in particular. So this is what's created this really passionate urge to transform the way people learn. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. I mean, certainly, um, and I'm sure a lot of people who aren't, you know, the, who, who weren't the thespian in their, in their, in their classroom, which you know, in, my, in my experience was the majority of the class. Uh, but when I had to learn drama and uh, certainly Shakespeare in, in, in English class, um, you know, we were being taught by, we were a deep STEM-based high school in Canada. Um, we were all meant to be engineers and doctors and the like and lawyers. And so um, it wasn't it wasn't particularly valued in my high school. So we were taught. I think the gym teacher taught us our first Shakespeare class, <laughs> and you can imagine how well that went because he couldn't stand it. We couldn't stand it, um, and it was like a foreign language to us, uh, as you can imagine. You know, we're given the book, uh, the play. You've got to go home and read it. It makes no sense, um, and then you come back and discuss it, and that's not going to go very well. So give, give us a flavor of a bit about you know if you're a student sitting at home because it's also obviously in, in universities as well that you. Yeah, digital theatre is much more than just putting the play online. There's a lot of supporting material and you can obviously split the play up and watch sections of it. And for me, that is exactly as you describe it, that you've got this slightly, to put it bluntly, dead text in school that you're furiously making notes on. That's what it was like at, at my school. And the only chance you're going to see that dead text made live is if you're lucky enough to go to a physical theatre. Now that has changed, thanks to companies like digital theatre. If I could relive my school days, I could come home and watch a particular scene in Hamlet that I've studied that day at school. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we, we, we cover the entire gambit of the experience. So if you first put yourself in the shoes of a teacher, and if you're the teacher and you are trying to get a bunch of 14-year-old, snotty-nosed, slightly uninterested kids to get <laughs> excited about the thing that you're deeply passionate about, then we're here to help from that perspective. So we start at the very beginning of the process. So we offer up workshops 
filmed workshops, written workshops for teachers on how to teach the more you know complex subject matters uh, in uh, across across drama, languaging, and English language arts. Um, then we've got full productions uh, mapped to uh, the the key texts that are aligned with the exam boards around the UK and uh, and the curriculum set across the United States and international baccalaureates around the world and um, and where we don't have the full productions we try to get the key scenes that are that are that are strictly studied and then we have study guides endless study guides available for all the students aka the answers to the exams and then we've got audio less uh, 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 versions so you can listen to it on the way to school we basically come at it from every possible angle so yeah we try to cover the whole gambit and we've we've been really focusing this year because as we all know schools the world over shut uh, in mid-march and teachers and schools uh, school boards were thrown into you know a whole a whole scary state of how having tried to figure out how to teach students in this in this arena uh kids schools have all opened up again in, in various forms around the world now and we've been very much focused on two key things there'll be a lot of students who have a gap now in what they were expected to have learned by now coming into the new school year so we focused a lot on helping teachers and students fill those gaps or creating content very very much around that principle and then the other is around virtual teaching remote teaching whether at the university level college school level Students and teachers are clearly in varying degrees of hybrid learning and teaching. And as we know, it's going to ebb and it's going to flow over the next, you know, for, you know, foreseeable future. So we're very much leaning into coming up with those virtual environments and how to teach in that in that specific context. Oh, it sounds absolutely brilliant and extremely valuable. But just going back to digital theatre normal, if you like, <laughs> for a minute, what are the kind of four or five things that you're really excited about that are sort of airing now, if you like, that the audiences are really loving at the moment. Ooh, okay. So we're particularly excited about a couple of key key things. So we, we've got a very long-standing relationship with the Royal Shakespeare Company. We recently published um, The Merry Wives of Windsor, The Taming of the Shrew, As You Like It, Measure for Measure. And, you know, these got, you know they, they cover interesting themes around gender swapping and women taking control in the 1590s in Britain. There's all sorts of really exciting stuff there that, that um, our audiences are really enjoying. And I'd say the other real big one was our Donmar Shakespeare trilogy. So The Tempest, Henry IV, Julius Caesar, all captured in 2016, all part of a trilogy performed as a temporary, you know, in a temporary venue in King's Cross, which was really exciting because it was a, it's an all-female cast, wonderfully diverse and set in the world of women's prison. So really interesting take on some classics there. And uh, the audiences are really enjoying that. And I think the audience is really looking for something just a little bit different, a little bit more contemporary or exploring different avenues of, of, of the traditional takes in the classics. So yeah, we're seeing a lot of energy there. So can I just explore a bit some of the myths about theatre online? Because, you know, as we talk through this, you know, when digital theatre is, say, trying to persuade a school or a university to take its service, you know, the, the question is obviously, why should we take it? And actually, the more you listen to Unile, the question really should be, why wouldn't you take it? How on earth can you actually teach theatre or plays without kids having recourse to video? But the kind of two kind of, I've, I've already kind of given my view by calling them myths, but the two criticisms are, first of all, that if, particularly on the consumer side, if you put a play online, it's going to cannibalize the audience that would go and see the live production. And secondly, the slightly more uh, esoteric point that you, know, you can only appreciate theater live. Looking at it online is a poor substitute. Mm -hmm. So I, I think this is really interesting area. So I, let's, you know, I, I, 
I've now uh, uh, started my journey into into theater, and you know I'm, I'm a novice here, and um, it's been a really interesting experience. Me going into pre pre COVID, obviously, learn starting to go to the theater and experiencing, uh, you know, obviously the wonderful the experience of the live experience, uh, which is just brilliant, and it's hard to and, and almost impossible to replicate all aspects of that uh, of that experience. There are things, however, that aren't that phenomenal about going into an older building with small cramped seats with very high temperatures in the in the room where i'm sweating you know plastic wine glasses for my expensive wine <laughs> uh you know paying paying the equivalent of what three years of my netflix subscription on one night easily um you know there's there, there's a lot of things that need to be kind of worked out about the overall experience we all know about obviously hamilton going online on disney plus and the experience there. And, you know, I, I, my kids are a great example here. You know, they're six and eight and have not watched Hamilton Live. I have, I've had the benefit of doing that, but my kids have not. When it aired on Disney Plus, they were able to watch it and their mind, I could watch their heads just explode. And it was brilliant. And if anyone thinks that my kids are now not going to beg me to go watch it live the moment they can, I mean, they're absolutely mistaken. It's, it's now expanding, I think, you know, the, the audiences by quite a considerable margin. The number of people who can, if you can create the access to a much wider audience, so say someone like myself who really does struggle to part with 300 quid for an evening of theater, but if I can watch and have access to, let's say, hundreds of plays at home, and I can explore and then go into the theater for the ones and go see it live when I get the chance, I think the audience is just going to be larger and bigger um, as, as, as we go forward. I, th I think it's absolutely a supportive angle. And then from a creative perspective, I think there's definitely a journey to be had there, right? You, can, you cannot, as far as I can tell, truly replicate today the overall whole, the whole experience. But there are different versions of the experience that I think from a capturing perspective that we can explore. It's a journey, we have to figure it out. There's so many interesting ways we can go about doing this as we go forward. And I think everyone's up for uh, a good creative challenge here as we go, as we go forward. I, I totally agree with you on that. Uh, I mean, I, you know, when I watch a play, it's often because I've missed it when it's live. And also you do get a different experience. You, you can still appreciate, for example, the, sea, the, the sets and the quality of the sets and the artistry. But you do get a different experience. Anyway, Charlotte, sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to ask you very quickly. So that's really interesting about driving audiences into the theatre because I saw, um, I think it was Jane Eyre uh, on National Theatre Live and I was really cross I'd missed it and I would have gone had I been able to. So I'm just wondering how quickly you get these plays on air. Are they still running in the theatre when they're airing on your channel? Yeah, I, th I think they're, so the short answer is no uh, and, and that's got to ho hopefully change and I, I, I can speak to that uh, briefly. You know, the challenge is, I guess, on, you know, typically, and you, you, you two will know this, right? Theater runs, production runs are often quite short, right? Six weeks, six weeks to a few months, and then it's over, right? And if you, if you're not, you know, and I, I know people in the industry, and I still can't get to the productions I want to see. Yeah, and that's so let, true. Let, yeah. Let alone the average person, right? Um, I booked, you know, Death of a Salesman one year in advance, and it's, it's, it's insane how hard it is to get there. So, um, so from that perspective, um, a, a lot of work to be done uh, in terms of seeing if we can speed things up. However, there's a different angle, which is the the live stream angle, which is to which is something we are really keen to explore. And as and and, and we know, you know, the likes of uh, the old Vic have have already started this this creative exercise, which is. 
get some very high fidelity cameras up and stream it live, it can still be a ticketed event and you can still watch it from your home, the comfort of your own home. You can still have the intermission and all the lovely elements of that, you know, that, that, that you, that you, that you like with, with the, the live theater experience, but, um, but you're streaming it live as if, as if you were there in the theater. Um, and that's, that's another angle that, that we are really keen to explore and have already started kind of building out a capability around that. It's a, it's a terrible cliche to talk about what, how COVID has changed things. But I imagine that the theatre community, having been, you know, let's be blunt about this, mildly resistant to kind of digital plays, uh, is now kind of absolutely seeing the benefit. But I think also their own audiences, as Charlotte and you were saying about how difficult it is to actually see a a great production because it's a short run and limited physical capacity. Presumably the theatre community now does recognise that digital has to be a complementary part of their offering. A hundred percent. Our conversations with with all the theatres have fundamentally changed to, you know, from, you know, should we, should we to, you know, how could we do this? You know, what's it going to take? What, what, what are the requirements? What are, you know, so a hundred percent. And yeah, unfortunately it took a shock to the system that as, as unfortunate as COVID has to, to get us there. But I think that's, that's, that's quite often the way it, it works with, um, with, with many industries. And so, you know, the, 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 to put it bluntly again, you know, from a, from a revenue perspective, expanding your audiences, um, you know, the math, the math will work out. You know, my, my, my kids have now watched Hamilton four times on, <laughs> you know, and, and, and they're going to keep watching it and they rewatch, you know, and it's, 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 it's just the new way of doing things. It, it is nothing but upside that, uh, for, for everybody involved actors, you know, the, the writers, the, the crews, camera, it can open up a much larger industry. Um, the entire, there's a whole new creative industry that, 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 and supporting industry around it that can be built up around this that we've seen, um, with the likes of, uh, that's happened in the broadcast TV industry. And we can do the same thing for, for theater. Brilliant. You're an absolute star, Neil. Thank you for coming on. I, and I think it is, as I say, one of the reasons I'm thrilled to work with digital theaters. I think it's an absolutely essential service if we're going to keep paradoxically, if we're going to keep theatre alive and get people engaged. So thanks so much. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Thank you both. Speak to you soon. Take care. So now to our final guest, who's from one of my and Ed's favourite organisations, Open City. Open City is dedicated to opening up parts of London we wouldn't normally see. I discovered it by going on one of its architectural river tours along the Thames. And since then, I've been to all their annual open house festivals, which is when they've opened up all kinds of places from grand old Spencer House on Green Park to estates, community centres and brutalist architectural rarities. Ed, you've even worked for Open House, haven't you? Yes, I did uh, an Open House one weekend many moons ago. I think I went to, I took a tour of the Foreign Office and also some really flash house, which had an indoor swimming pool, a long, narrow indoor swimming pool, which has made me feel inadequate ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, well, they, <laughs> one day well, they, I will have a long and narrow indoor swimming pool. Well, you can have a long, long and wide swimming pool in your house. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> who knows whether my numbers will come up on the lock? <laughs> anyway, Open House, now known as Open City, have got a new director called Phineas Harper, who started in lockdown a series of newly commissioned films, a podcast, that's a rarity, architectural car models to build at home, that's a great idea, places like the Hoover Building, Palm House at Kew, and a new book, The Alternative Guide to the London Boroughs. The book is guest edited by Owen Hadley, and 33 writers, architects, and activists 
have written for it, exploring famous and unheralded buildings, streets, estates, and neighbourhoods. We'll put all the details on our website, but it's absolutely fabulous. So now the Open House Festival starts this weekend, and we have with us Hafsa Adan, who is one of their assistant curators. Now, I know you're absolutely passionate about London's beauty being the result of communities, the communities who shape and inhabit it. And I know you're especially interested in showing us parts of London that aren't usually celebrated. So tell us what people will be able to see over the festival. I mean, as Ed has already spoken about, we have a wide range of programming this year. Due to the COVID restrictions, we've got a lot of alternative programming on, like the films and the models. Um, As Ed said, the model series is incredible. So we have this Model London series, which is a fun and virus-proof activity that you can order off of our website uh, straight to your house and is a great activity to be enjoyed by children and anyone interested in architecture, which is like a really wonderful way to bring architecture into the home. Uh, We've also got the amazing film series, which is filmed around various parts of London and is narrated by people who are really passionate about these spaces. As for like buildings that are open in the more traditional sense of uh, open house, we have one of the buildings that I'm really excited to see open and we're doing a film on tomorrow actually is the Phoenix Garden Community Building by Office Shan. This is like an amazing community garden and community centre which is tucked away in this like really busy area in Covent Garden. You just kind of go down a side street and you see this beautiful little kind of green haven that is like almost hidden away from like the hustle and bustle of like the retail streets of west london which is really lovely and i'm really excited to see that um, sounds really cool that's exactly what it's about discovering a hidden yeah. gem right in the center of london that you probably exactly and especially of. with like the coronavirus i think we've all become a lot more dependent on these green spaces is trellick tower open of course yeah yeah, because that's yeah. always fun. I've, I've got was... I've got quite a few friends who live in there now, and that's oh, always rather amazing. The um, Erno Goldfinger yeah. building. Oh, yeah. 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 The Trellick Tower on the Goldbourne Road, which I once canvassed as a Conservative candidate. And uh, I'll never forget, I got the lift to the top and started putting the leaflets through the doors. And by the time I got to the bottom, it was like a gentle shower of rain as scrunched up leaflets were hurled out of the windows. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't probably... <laughs> no, I don't expect it was the Tory heartland. Well, now, it's of, now it's full of your friends, Charlotte. It must be a Tory target seat. If it's for, oh, no, yeah. <laughs> but it's, very, it's, it's quite an interesting building because I know from one friend I had who tried to fiddle with her flat a bit and you can't touch anything, can you? You can't even take the kind of protective chicken wire out of the windows or change a lock or any of the wooden cladding on the balconies. It's so listed. Yeah, it's like uh, it's a bit like the Barbican, funny enough. And, and those flats also are duplexes. A lot of the flats are two-storey flats. I mean, they really are pretty special. So tell us, just tell us quickly a bit more about these, um, some of these films and where people can find them. So the films will be premiering on the weekend, so they'll be released, staggered released across the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. Um, We've got films at places like Dorich House Museum. We have films of the Crystal Palace Skate Park. We have films at Tutimbet Lido. We have all these amazing films and all the people narrating the films are people who actually use these spaces and you can see like that it's a lived in space and it's like a place that's well loved, which is an amazing 
an amazing way to show how communities really bring to life architecture, I think. I'm assuming for now that the river tours have stopped because of coronavirus, but are there plans in the future, do you think, to restart those? Um, I believe so. I mean, we still have a number of tours on the programme for this year. One of the tours I was really excited for was this tour called Slavery in the City, which is a guided tour by an all-female tour guide group called Six in the City, who explore sites and institutions with direct links to slavery and Britain's colonial past, which is one of our core themes for this year, which I think is a really interesting direction for Open House because it isn't something that's been explored in the past. Well, thank you so much. That was so interesting. And, um, you know, I'm, I might see you at the weekend because I'm definitely going to be going. That's amazing. I'll see you around. Take care, Hatfa. Bye. That's all we've got time for today, so thank you for listening. Please remember to log on to countryandtownhouse.co.uk where you can find our pod, other podcast, House Guest, with Carol Annett. It's a lot better than this podcast. It's all about interior design. <laughs> and you can also sign up for our newsletter, which I admit I really actually do love. And thank you very much for all your feedback about last week. We've learned that Porchester Castle was a revelation to many of you who tuned in to listen to Kate Mavell from English Heritage. We love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and email us at breakoutculture at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. But goodbye till next week. Goodbye. <laughs>